0: I think over the last um, 15 years of marriage, just about 15 years of marriage, there are a lot of things that I have learned about life uh, from my wife, Krista. But probably one of the lessons that she has taught me um, most profoundly in terms of just like day-to-day life, my wife has taught me how to do proper consumer research. This woman is a marvel to me. She will not spend a dollar of our money until she is determined through endless consumer research that she is receiving the very top value for the very bottom dollar. This, this is her goal. She doesn't always buy the very cheapest version and she doesn't always buy the very highest quality version. She buys the one that maximizes quality and price and she figures it out over hours of research, literally will not buy anything until she's done the... Well, I shouldn't say she doesn't buy anything. (laughs) As I share this, uh, Krista's actually traveling to South Carolina um, with a carry-on suitcase that she would like to throw into the Atlantic Ocean because she bought it and she absolutely hates it. (laughs) Our uh, carry-on had fallen apart on our last trip and so we needed to buy a new one and... Instead of doing her normal like research and whatever, we were walking through Canadian Tire one day and they had uh, a set on sale and it was super cheap. And I said, well, look, here's luggage right here. And she said, okay. And she grabbed it and we took it home and she was packing for South Carolina and she came downstairs and she threw the luggage on the ground and she's like, I want to throw this thing in the garbage. This is terrible. I said, it doesn't have mesh under the inside cover and there's no pockets on the front and it doesn't have a proper foot so it falls over all the time. And I said, it's not that big a deal. It's just a piece of luggage. And she said, no, I'm not mad at the luggage. I'm mad at me because I allowed myself to get talked into buying something I hadn't researched and I'm stuck with this piece of junk. Like it is, she never, ever, ever gets caught with that. We We took... The house that we're living in right now. We took 18 months to pick this house. We had the luxury of some time. And we, I think, saw every house and empty lot in the entire city of St. Catharines before we settled on this lot. And to be fair to my wife, it came at a great price and it's the perfect home for our family. But this woman knows, and this is my point, this woman knows how to figure out whether something is the real deal. That's what she wants. And I've watched her do this over the years, and I've sometimes thought to myself, wouldn't it be amazing if there was a way to figure out spiritually whether my faith was the real deal? What research allows me to figure out whether I'm living the kind of faith that God has invited me to live? To measure my maturity or uh, my spirituality, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So we turn back to the book of James. And we're going to start reading from James chapter 1, verse 26. And in this passage we're going to look at this morning, James begins to unfold a couple of ways to, to think about our spirituality. To kind of get at the root of how genuine or authentic or mature is our spirituality really. And so this is the way James begins. In James chapter 1, verse 26, he says, Those who consider themselves religious... I'm just going to press pause right there Uh, because in our 21st century culture, there aren't too many of us who would like to consider ourselves religious. It's it's hard to know whether James is, is this a compliment or an insult? Is this a good thing, a bad thing? Um, Because in our culture, quite frankly, people are running away from being religious. I I read a sociological study, uh, Dr. Joel Thiessen, guy out in Calgary uh, did release a study in 2015, where he said that um, the second largest religious population, according to the 2013 census, the second largest religious population in Canada are the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, the, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the people who would say on a census, my religious affiliation is none. I do not associate with any organized religion whatsoever. It's the fastest growing segment in the Canadian religious landscape. People who have looked at the scriptures, you know, just looking at through the lens of the church. People have looked at the Bible and who say, that book makes me uncomfortable in ways. There's things in there that I object to. People who look at the tradition of the church, whether it's like the rituals and the routines or whether it's the church's history of crusades or whatever. And they say that the whole tradition of it makes me uncomfortable. Or um, they'll just say, I don't like institutionalism. I don't like putting being put into, into boxes. Or, um, you know, they'll say like, I... Uh, the religious violence and conflict that is always associated with organized religion. I just want to have nothing to do with the tribalism and exclusivity. There's us and them all the time. And people are just saying, I want nothing to do with it. They're choosing instead individualism. Like I'm, I'm going to choose for myself what I think is spiritually true. And, and they're choosing sort of secularism or, or privatization in that my spiritual life is just between me and God. It's nobody else's business. And this where an increasing number of us, even emotionally, even within the church, we get uncomfortable considering ourselves religious. Which is too bad, actually, in, in Thiessen's study. He cited some sources that seem to indicate that actually, instead of choosing to be spiritual but not religious, that actually the best way to be spiritual is to be religious. And what he means by that is, That uh, uh, participating in some visible external religious ritual in a community of people who are sharing our religious convictions together. That's actually the most effective way to nurture and grow a sense of vital spirituality in you. So he would say, don't choose to be spiritual, but not religious. If you want to be spiritual, be religious, but be it in the right way. Right And we believe that wholeheartedly in our community that's why we gather on Sunday mornings just like this in, in, as a whole community, and we pray to God with, with our words and with our songs, and we um, do spiritual practices together and we expose ourselves to scripture together, we listen to what you know God is saying to us, and we do it together in community we gather together in relationships in in life groups throughout the week um, where we Show up and join in the conversation. And just are real with each other. About our spiritual journeys. We get involved in our anchor causes. Like we've been talking about over the last month. In the series Hope Lives. And if you weren't here to see it. You got to watch it. Um, where we're engaging in relationship. With with people who have less than us. Both here at home and around the world. Because friendship makes the difference for all of us. And we just genuinely believe. That these sorts of shared Sharing our faith life together in community in these ways actually grows us in our love for God and it grows us in our sense that we're loved by God and so we can love ourselves and it grows us in the way that we love each other and it grows us in the way that we love the world. And yet listen to what James actually says, the whole verse. Because this is the kind of thing he's talking about too when he's talking about being religious, about sharing your faith life in community with others. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. James says there's a danger here. That there is actually a way of participating in the faith life of a community in a way that actually isn't genuine and authentic. It doesn't represent a genuine spirituality. That on the one hand, while a person in order to be spiritual should be religious. On the other hand, not everyone that's religious is spiritual. In fact, James says some people are just deceiving themselves. They're fooling themselves. The the word in Greek kind of refers to something that has the appearance of reality, but there's no substance to it. Like a cloud. We, We just took our girls on a plane trip for some of them. It was their first plane trip ever. Took them on a plane trip this fall. And it's sort of funny to watch the reaction of the clouds. The clouds look like real things until you're flying through them. You realize, oh, there's actually nothing here. James says some people's spirituality is like that. It appears to be something impressive because they're showing up for worship and they're participating in the community and getting involved with the poor, but there's actually nothing there. If you inspect it closely, Uh, the word implies something that is purposeless or ineffective. It doesn't accomplish its goal. It doesn't do what it's supposed to. It's like a mirage, which promises water, but you show up and there's no water there to be had. And now It is ineffective at quenching your thirst. It can't do the thing it's supposed to do. The word implies sometimes that it is an offensive counterfeit of the real thing. And this is why people flee and avoid the church in record numbers. Because of hypocrisy. because, Because the church at times can become an offensive counterfeit of the real thing. Of genuine spirituality. And so the question is. For those of us who are participating. In the faith life of the community. How do we know. Whether or not we're living an authentic spirituality. Well, James. In this passage. We're going to look at this morning. Gives us two. Quick little litmus tests. To test the sincerity and authenticity. The maturity of. Of your spirituality. And the first one we've already read in verse 26. He says. If you cannot keep a tight rein on your tongue. um, You are deceiving yourself. You're fooling yourself. That you're more spiritual than you are. James says one of the most accurate ways. To take the temperature of your or somebody else's spirituality. Is just listen to the way that they speak. Because. Because. Our words can betray what's genuinely in our spirit. James didn't get this idea, didn't invent this. He got this from his brother, Jesus. Jesus says, excuse me, in Luke chapter six, verse 45, a good person brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart and an evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. What we betray with our words is the real deal about what's going on in our heart. We're like, um, we're like cups that are filled to the brim with water. When they get bumped, whatever spills out of them is, a, is the truth about what's inside of them. And sometimes the things that spill out in our words don't exactly resemble the character of Jesus. I think about dishonest words, when we just say things that aren't true. Or we say true things, but we still intend to deceive somebody else. When Jesus says, I am the truth. Um, Or I think about ways in which we speak the truth, but we do it without love. In gossip or in slander, the way that we backbite or we're malicious to people. The way we talk about people instead of talking to people. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I only speak in ways that build people up. I think so about some of the ways we speak that tear people down. Our angry words. Our violent words. The sarcasm. And not the good kind that's funny. Because sarcasm is like my love language. But the bad kind that actually just hurts people. Abusive language. Bullying language. Jesus says, no, I'm gentle and humble in heart. The word humble makes me think of all the arrogant language, the boasting, the bragging, the self-centered talk, the, how much we make it about us. Um, so all sorts of ways in which our speech betrays the fact or Puts on display the ways in which our heart isn't yet aligned with Jesus. Grumbling and complaining. Another one. The evidence of the Holy Spirit's activity in your life is joy and giving thanks in all circumstance. James has already talked, actually. We've talked a couple weeks, several weeks ago. But two ways that James brings this up. He talks about the arrogance of opinionatedness. If there's a person who has an opinion about everything from politics to climate change to cannabis to vaccinations to breastfeeding to theology in church. They always have an opinion about everything and they're always at the ready to rant about it to everyone who will listen. That kind of arrogance is just not consistent with a community that resembles Jesus or the arrogance of of contentiousness. The person who, when confronted with an opposing opinion, immediately gets angry and has to fight, no holds barred, to the death, shouting the other person down until they can demonstrate their dominance and make sure that everybody knows that they're right and everybody else wrong. These are ways of speaking that, that are just inconsistent with the person of Jesus. But I think James has another, when he talks about keeping a control of your tongue, there's there's another thing that he's thinking about. It's not just destructive words. I think he's thinking about empty words. The ways in which our religious or our pious or our spiritual talk doesn't really amount to anything because it doesn't line up with our life. Right? There's a proverb in the Bible that says with hard work, there's always a profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. If all you do is talk a good game, it actually leads to nothing. It leads to your own destruction. There has to be action to back up the talk. James talks about this. We're going to look at this, a passage more detailed in a couple of weeks. But James talks about it in chapter 2 when he says, you know, some of you just, you profess belief. Oh, I believe in God. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe the Bible is true. And you imagine that professions of belief are enough to represent a mature spirituality. And James says, yeah, good for you for believing those things. That's fantastic. Um, So do the demons. And it doesn't help them. Like a genuine profession of faith isn't enough to demonstrate an authentic spirituality if it's not backed up by your life. Or James will talk about people who will offer pious platitudes to folks who are hurting and and hopeless and helpless. You know, the, the language he uses, you see someone in desperate material, physical, financial need and you say, oh man, I feel bad for you. Be warm and well fed. Well, then you don't do anything to help them. James says it's ridiculous there's no faith there that's not genuine faith right the 21st century equivalent for us is thoughts and prayers right after a mass shooting in the states politicians will rush to the cameras and or to social media to offer their thoughts and prayers to the victims and their families. Thoughts and prayers. I saw a woman recently, her, her child had died in a mass shooting. She was in front of the camera bawling her eyes out and she said, I don't want your thoughts and prayers. You can keep them. I want gun control. And she was just saying what is obvious to all of us. And that is, if it's only talk, if there's no action to back up what you're saying, that that's nothing. I think of ways in which we've nurtured that in the church. But telling people, for example, that in order to become a Christian, all you need to do is say the sinner's prayer. Dear Jesus, forgive me because I'm a sinner. Oh, good. Now you're a Christian and you're going to heaven and no one can ever take that away from you. No, that's, those are just words. If they're not backed up by a life, you're, you're, it's just empty talk. I think about the ways in the church that we muse and debate and talk about theology or we muse and debate and talk about the church. But if you're not engaged in a vital spirituality, if you're not meaningfully participating in the life of the church, it's just talk. They're just words. There's nothing to it. We're just fooling ourselves into thinking that we're more spiritual and more mature than we really are. James says one of the ways that you can measure the authenticity of your spirituality is by your talk. The second way he says that you measure the authenticity of your spirituality is by your walk. By the actions that back up the words. He goes on in verse 27. He says religion that God our father accepts as pure and faultless as this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. Why does he talk about orphans and widows? Well, in the first century, orphans and widows were the two most economically vulnerable populations in the culture. Period. It was a culture in which only uh, adult men could work. So women can't work, children can't work. And so if you did not have in your family system an adult male who was working and able to provide for your family, you were poor. And there was nothing you could do about it. It was a culture that didn't have a social safety net. So aside from mooching off your family, receiving a little bit of money from the temple um, or begging, that was, those were all your economic options and they were insufficient. If you were a widow or if you were an orphan, your future was already determined. It was a future of poverty, probably prostitution, crime, disease, and and early death. And there was nothing you could do about it. That's what James means, by the way, when he talks about their distress. It's a word that means to be squashed, to be crushed, to be pressed or depressed it's a word that described people who were stuck or trapped like an animal in a cage they were trapped in their circumstances it was a word that was used to describe people who were being bullied and attacked and oppressed by others and james says The person who has a genuine spirituality, the kind of religion or religiosity or spirituality that God recognizes as genuine and real is the kind of spirituality that in a situation like that is willing to step in the gap and fight for those who can't fight for themselves. Actually to be the presence of God for that person. It's interesting to me. The passage says religion that God our father Finds pure and faultless. Why call him God our father? Well, the thing that orphans and widows have in common is that they're missing a father figure. There's a gap where that person should be. And this is what God says about himself in Psalm 68 verse 5. It says, a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God says, when when you don't have that figure in your world, I will step in and I will be that for you. And it is through the community called the church, the community of faith, that God invites us to step into the gap, to step into that role, to be the loving rescuing presence of God to people who are helpless and hopeless and in desperate need. James says, "If, if your religion... If your spirituality doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like anything that God recognizes. He goes on. This is the second thing he says about this. Religion that God our father accepts as pure and faultless as this. To keep oneself from being polluted by the world. (laughs) Keep oneself from adopting the value system. Of the world by living by the world's rules and and values. Well, which rules and values is James talking about? Well, if you just read what James writes, one of them we've already talked about a couple times this fall. This idea that money and stuff is really the answer to all of life's problems. That a life of comfort and ease is our purpose and our goal. The idea that we will commit ourselves to having and accumulating as much stuff as possible. James has already said, if you realize the value of what it means to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you would gladly give away everything you have in order to obtain it. We talked about the value of the danger of wealth to a life of faith and the value of radical generosity that lowers our definition of enough so that everybody can have enough. Looking ahead to pastors, we're going to unpack in the new year. He talks about the kind of selfish ambition that wants its agenda that wants to get its own way and will stop at Nothing to get it no matter who gets bulldozed and hurt in the process. That's the world's values. It talks about um, the kind of pride or arrogance that puts its own interests ahead of everybody else in order to feed its own desires and pleasures. In other words, when James talks about not being polluted by the world, what he's talking about is not being polluted by the very kinds of values that would interfere with the lives of people who are genuinely called to be committed to serving economically and in relationally and in every other way. Those who have less, the, the, um, the disenfranchised, the poor, the marginalized, the forgotten and ignored by society, the very hard attitudes that make it harder for us to choose to care for the orphans and the widows, to act justly. And- And to love mercy. And to have that be how we walk humbly with God. James says if you're not doing that. You're not living a spirituality that God recognizes. And that's sort of James's point. That at the end of the day. By our talk and by our walk. By the things that we say and the things that we do. We demonstrate the depth and strength and maturity of our spirituality. Because at the end of the day, God is inviting us not into a life of attending services and participating in community and, you know, occasionally cutting a check to compassion or doing some other form of charity. This this isn't, this isn't the life that God Jesus didn't come and, and live and um, teach and heal and embrace the forgotten and ignored and the marginalized and die on the cross and be raised from the dead and send the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God into our lives so that we could become good church going people. That's not the end goal. He's inviting us into worship and he's inviting us into community and he's inviting us into relationship with the poor because this is how we grow in our love for God and our love for ourselves and our love for each other and our love for the world. And this is how he fills us and grows our spirituality, of course, but that's not the end goal. That's not what it looks like to live a mature, healthy, vibrant spirituality. Jesus didn't come. So that we could be or so that we could play church together. To to go through these motions to impress God or impress each other or to impress ourselves with how spiritual we are. Jesus didn't come that we would play church. Jesus came so that we could be church. Forgiven For all the ways that our love has failed. And and being transformed every day by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. So that we could become the loving rescuing presence of God in the world. So we could become the Jesus shaped humanity that we were always created To be so we could become the conduit by the power of the Holy Spirit. Of the life and the love and the hope of God in the lives of the people who need it the most. Remember years ago. um, We did this thing in church. I I was going through my um, desk drawer this week looking for something to write a phone number on. And I found this piece of paper. I don't know if you can read that. On the one side, it says before, and on the other side, it says after. And it reminded me that years ago in a service like this one, we did this exercise where we handed out big placards to people that said before and after on them. And and we asked some people to write, you know, who you were before Jesus really got a hold of your life and, and who you're becoming after as you live into this life that God has called us to. And I remember there was one guy. Been around church his whole life. Helped start this church 35 years ago or whatever it was. 38 years ago. Um, I think he was on the board of elders at the time. And on the before side, he came up front and he held up his placard. And on the before side, it says, before I was just playing church. And he flipped it over and after it said, now I'm learning to be the church. And that's the point, friends. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. That's the kind of spirituality that God is hoping and wanting and wishing to embrace with us. The spirituality in which all of our words, everything that we say and everything that we do radiates the life and the love of jesus into the world and only jesus can do that in us so join me as i pray that god would through jesus in the power of the holy spirit help us become people who don't just play church but who are the church in everything we say and do let's pray Heavenly Father, I want to confess on behalf of all of us, the ways in which we just sometimes sort of play around with being followers of Jesus. I want to thank you for this community. And for the ways that we, we have the opportunity to gather together in worship. To be in relationship with each other. To partner together uh, in relationship with those who have less than us. To, to walk out this life that you've given us. And I want to I confess and reject all of the times and all of the ways that we turn that into merely playing church. Trying to impress you or each other or ourselves with how spiritual we are. God, would you fill our hearts with the power of your Holy Spirit to transform the way that we speak to each other and about each other, and would you fill our hearts? Would you break our hearts for what breaks your heart, which is the plight of those who are being broken by this world? Would you help us be the church by the way that we radiate Jesus into the world, by everything we say and do? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.